Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 Pod Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. The Pod Conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from Pod 2022. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to start actually with a question to the audience. Um, how many of you have traveled to, uh, from outside Boston to be here today? So if you could raise hands. So yeah, it's a great turnout and we are lucky the ones that we are local here. So welcome, Bob. Nice sitting with you today. Well, it's, it's an honor to be back here and it's amazing to see so many people in this room and to see all of you. Well, let's start with the first question, like to start talking about technologies in your lab. And um, since this touched me closely, I would like to start with the uh, insulin pill that we developed when I was in your lab in collaboration with Novo Nordisk, which earlier this year it entered clinical trials. Um, so how far do you think that we are from taking biologics in a pill? Well, actually, I, I actually brought one of uh, this so people can see it. Um, not that people can see it very well from here, but this is this is the pill uh, that Esther Esther helped design. It's published in both Science and Nature journals. Um, at any rate, what I was going to say is, in terms of taking biologics, well, there are a number of ones in clinical trials. The the idea here that we did. Uh, that Esther worked on was we would have uh, make a needle actually out of the drug itself like insulin and then we found a way based on uh, designing something that would kind of mimic like a leopard tortoise so that it would when you swallowed it just would uh, have a certain weight distribution so it would always land let's say in the stomach or the right place in the GI tract and then the needle we had a time so it would come out and go into the body and we were able to show that that would give you the same bioavailability and the same blood glucose lowering in a pig that you got if you injected it in the arm. Um, and as Esther mentioned, now that's in human clinical trials. There's another company, Ronnie, that's also trying to develop biologics in clinical trials. And then there's a lot of other interesting strategies that people are using. Uh, pick a couple companies that I've had some involvement with, but Entrego, which is a part of PureTech, they actually have developed, and they're speaking, I believe, later today or tomorrow, they actually have a special gel that you can swallow, uh, and they've been working with Eli Lilly and others, and have gotten very good results in animals. And then there's a, another company I've been advising called Senda, and that, that what they've done, you know, you, you hear about, like you just heard about different nanoparticles, but they actually have a library of actually 50,000 molecules they've gotten from four, you know, different, uh, you know, kingdoms. And, uh, and, and so by combining them, they've been able to do oral delivery of biologics, again, just in animal studies and, and other things as well. And I, I, and I think there's just all kinds of strategies that, that people are looking at. So that that could hopefully get us there. That the, the issue always seems to me getting a good enough bioavailability to make it worthwhile. Or if you're not getting a good enough bioavailability, that that the convenience of taking it orally, you know, will make such a difference compared to injection. Great. 
we see like a lot of technologies in the horizon, so hopefully we'll see some in the market as well. Um, can you tell us about other exciting projects in your lab? Any game-changing technologies on the horizon that you are working on? Well, I, I like to think that we have a few, but um, but I'm pre I'm prejudiced. But let me break it down into a couple categories. <clears throat> One, you know, we've been uh, Bill, Bill Gates came to see me about ten years ago because he'd seen some of the things that we'd done for, say, helping people in, you know, the, what he calls the rich world, and was interested in could we do that for the developing world. So some of the things, so we have quite a number of efforts aimed at that. One of them is, uh, and, and, and in fact, Gio Traversa, who worked with both of us, uh, was very involved in this, is uh, could you ever take a pill, say for malaria, uh, that you could take just one pill and it would last for two weeks and knock out malaria in small communities? And so we worked out a way of, of designing a, a certain type of shape pill with the shape memory and a certain design that you can swallow and it, it basically stays in the stomach and keeps delivering the drug and then we can make it degrade at a very specific time again by the design. So there, you know, we were originally doing this for the Gates Foundation. In fact, we're still doing it that way. But there are a lot of other applications for that. So we started this company, Lindra, which the Gates Foundation invested in. But some of the applications, like in fact, in partnerships, they've worked with or are working with Gilead, you know, for AIDS drugs they're, you know, that you could take once a week. Uh, they're working uh, with AbbVie on Alzheimer's drugs that you could take once a week. But then there's, with the Gates Foundation, they're working on a once-a-month uh, birth control, uh, once-a-month birth control drug. All of this is oral. Um, and like I say, the malaria one. The most advanced one is actually treat, you know, mental health diseases. You can swallow these, and uh, and they, they're in phase two trials with for schizophrenia. It's not only about patient compliance. What happens is when you can take a drug for a long time orally, the C max is lowered, and yet the C average is the same, and C minimum is the same. So when you do it this way, the side effects can be much less. So, so that's one example that started with the Gates Foundation. Another is uh, actually, and Bill asked me about this way before the COVID issue, is vaccines. And his point there was almost the same as oral. You know, when people take that, and I'm sure people know this, but when you take a, a, a vaccine injection, you know, you have to keep coming back, at least for a second one, uh, and, and maybe more. But the problem, particularly, as he was saying in the developing world, is that people don't come back for the second injection. I don't think he realized how badly we do in the United States. We're not even in the top 50 in the countries in the world uh, on that. But, uh, but like I say, this was back in 2012. So what he was interested in and what he asked if we could do, and Anna Jacqueline in our lab led this effort, is could we come up with a, a cocktail of little nanoparticles or microparticles that could break at different times, like time zero, one month, six months, one year. So the idea is you'd give one injection, and uh, you know, and, and then you'd uh, 
that one injection would uh, deliver the vaccines at all the times you'd want it to be. And in fact, you could deliver multiple vaccines that way. So that's actually Anna and her team, they've, they've now worked on five different uh, vaccines, including mRNA vaccines. And quite a few of these are in non-human primate trials, which are, are working well. And again, you can do this with FDA approved materials like lactic glycolic acid. <clears throat> so, and then in addition, we're also working on with Dan Anderson, uh, who was one of my postdocs and now professor at MIT on, you know, many different types of lipid and nanoparticles and others. So that's been one big area. The other big area is not drug delivery per se. It's been tissue engineering. Can we make uh, new tissues and organs from scratch? And that led to artificial skin for burn victims. But also, uh, there were in like phase three clinical trials for blood vessels, uh, phase two trials for hearing loss, and, and quite a few others. The other thing that may be very relevant for drug delivery, though, is that the other side of creating new tissues and organs is that you could create tissues and organs on a chip. So that could tremendously accelerate drug testing. And in fact, uh, one of the things that Gio and I did with Thomas von Ehrlich, is that you could actually create a gastrointestinal tract on a chip. And that's a much better, more accurate way of predicting drug absorptions than if you, uh, if you use, rather than using CACO2 cells. So I'd like to think all these things in some manner or other will be helpful someday and make a difference. Yes, yeah, certainly they will. And how has COVID impacted the dynamics of your lab and your collaborations during the last couple of years? You know, it really hasn't affected it too much in terms of the lab. You know, a lot of what we were doing, so you have to look at it over time. When, when the COVID first hit, MIT shut down a lot of things. So they said if people were working on things that were related to COVID, then people could stay and work. So... We're, a lot of the things we we're doing, like I just mentioned, uh, the vaccines. We also actually had projects on masks, <coughs> projects on, <coughs> you know, brains on a, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> brains on a chip, and which we were testing to see about COVID going into that. So a lot of these projects we were able to keep going, even in the worst days. Then, of course, things would start to ease, and they'd make have. MIT would, you know, have, we'd swing shifts, as, as you, you know, people would be working all times of the day and night, though they did that anyhow probably before. Not that I'm a slave driver, but, uh, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but at any rate, uh, and, and then MIT would institute testing procedures, you know, so that you'd have to check before you'd go in. But I'd say it, it um, it didn't really change things that much. I think if I look at our paper output, patent output, it was pretty comparable those years than as compared to others. And in terms of collaborations, like you mentioned, I mean, we've had the collaborations with Nova Nordisk, with Roach, uh, you, you know, with a number of companies, and, they, and as well as different academic institutions. Uh, uh, Gene Leap was another, is another, uh, Fujifilm. So we had a number of different collaborations and those continued. Um, and yeah. Great. So speaking about collaborations, what are the steps that the company usually take to engage in a collaboration with your lab? Yeah, so I'd say, well, first, usually they like write me an email or visit. And, uh, but then, you know, I, I think the question is defining a project. And I should say, like, if we do something at MIT, 
you know, like, I mean, we're not a company. So, you know, the kinds of things that work best for our lab are things that are more long range, you know, that's not gonna create um, a product, but that could hopefully create a new technology, you know, something that is along like what you said in the second question, maybe like a breakthrough technology, something that's high risk and high reward. Uh, but, and, and, and so, you know, what I usually wanna do, I mean, the Nova Nordisk relationships was, you know, a very good example. I mean, they gave us, you know, millions of dollars every year and also put 30 or 40 people there to work on it and, uh, you know, flew different people back and forth and, 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 you know, and they're still funding it. You know, it's a very specific thing. They read a paper <clears throat> that we had written on, in that case was microneedle oral drug delivery. It was an early paper and they said, well, could we work with you? That must have been about 2015. You know, now the grant extends to 2026. But that, that was good. It funded a lot of graduate students, a lot of great postdocs like yourself, and continues to do so. And some of them even went to work for Nova Nordisk. Of course, the food over in Copenhagen is very good, but uh, so people like going there. But at any rate, so, so that's probably the first step is seeing something and defining a project. And then there's two groups at MIT, not me, that are important. One is the technology transfer office. And we may have patents in that area you, we, we, that, that the company wants to work in. And if we do, you know, they, of course, would like access to them in the technology transfer office. People like Lauren Foster and others, they work on that. And then the others, the officers sponsored programs and they would help on the contractual deals. I mean, our office helps a lot on it too, but it always has to go through the MIT system. And so, you know, you kind of work back and forth until you have it done. Great. So despite not having a business background, you have started over 40 companies that have been very successful in the space, and you have surrounded yourself with uh, great business partners like Polaris or Flagship in the Boston area. So many professors, maybe in the audience, might like the business training or resources to progress their technologies beyond the bench. Um, what, would you, what would your advice be to them on what steps should they take to spin out um, their inventions and find the right partners. Yeah, so so a couple things. First, not all of them have been a success, but um, but and, and in fact, if I, I, it's been a while since I've seen that video on me, but if when I was looking at it, I noticed that I said the same thing, that I have had a lot of failures. I, I, I mean, I hope some of them have, you know, we've had some successes too, but I think what's important is to, you learn by doing. I mean, I don't, I, even people who go to business school, I don't think there's any training for, in my belief, for doing this. I mean, I think the only way you learn is by doing. You learn by making mistakes. Hopefully you surround yourself with good people. But I do have a couple of rules or, or pieces of advice that I sort of formulated over the years from my own both successes supposedly and mistakes. And I'll break them up into two categories. One would be sort of where you are in the science. So to me, you don't start a company when you just have an idea. You know, what I generally try to do is start companies when we've created or envisioned a, a platform technology. By the way, most drug delivery systems like lipid nanoparticles or microspheres or a lot of the vectors that were just being discussed about, those are platform technologies. It's kind of 
plug and play. Um, John Marganori is going to speak to you tomorrow around this time. And John, um, you know, was the CEO of El Nylum, and I was on the scientific advisory board of it from the beginning. But John would always call these technologies like a plug and play. So platform technology is kind of a plug and play. You can do it for drug A, drug B, drug C. And I think that having that kind of technology is a great way to, and Moderna has certainly been that, you know, is that you have many, many shots on goal. And you can pretty much use a similar manufacturing procedure you know, for each of those different drugs. And, and so I think that that's much better than trying to, in my opinion, than having sort of some conglomerate with many different technologies, because it takes so much money to develop just one thing and to do one thing well. So the first thing is a platform technology. Second thing that, uh, that we've generally done, and again, I don't want to come across as too much of an academic snob, but we, you know, as we've published these things, published the initial science, usually in a journal like Science or Nature, um, like yours was a good example of that. I mean, we published in both Science and Nature, Science for the original one, but uh, Nature journals for several others for different molecules. The third thing is to have really good intellectual property. You know, ideally even blocking intellectual property. Fourth thing is to be reasonably far along, have some significant in vivo data. And I've also always liked doing these with my own students or postdocs having important roles. You know, a lot of times you can hire a lot of professional people, and, and I think you want to do that, but you also want people who have spent four or five years of their life and are just passionate will walk through walls to make this work. Um, so that's more on some of the science things. I also think that on the business side, really having great investors that will, you know, that understand that biotech is not gonna, it's not like Facebook. You know, it's not gonna, it takes a lot of money and there's gonna, things could be cyclical, we're seeing that now. Um, you know, it can be cyclical up or it can be cyclical down. Um, and, and so you want investors that will stick with you in both good times and bad. And, and, and be willing to you know, stick with you for the long run. And then you also need great business people. I mean, when I look at the really great CEOs, which John Marigonori is, Stefan Bonsell, and a number of other people that I've worked with are, I think having great leadership on the business side is just absolutely critical. And you want it all the way through, but the CEO has been particularly important. And I, I do think you want other things like good scientific advisory boards, good boards of directors. You want diverse expertise. So I think all those things are, are important. A follow-up question to that point. Uh, what are the main obstacles that you've encountered when creating a new entity? Yeah, well, they're gonna, probably going to be obvious, and they follow the answer that I just said. I mean, one, getting enough money, because it's, it's so easy to fail. You know, and, and if you have a great technology and you fail the first time, you, you want enough, and you may fail, not because the science doesn't work, but it could be because a partner pulls out, it could be because a clinical trial doesn't work out as well as you want, could be all kind, could just be the company you're partnering with changes their mind. I mean, there could be so many things. So having enough money is, is key. That, that's been one obstacle. And another obstacle goes to having which is a little bit tied to that, is having the right business people again. I, I always feel like being a scientist, I'm pretty good at picking out good scientists, but good, finding good CEOs, that's a much harder thing. 
And I've watched that both being on big company boards, like I was on Wyeth's board before we sold it to Pfizer and on Millipore's board. I mean, finding great CEOs at any level, to me, is, is not an easy thing to do. You can go get headhunters, but, you know, it's, it's, it's still a very, very tough thing. And so the, the, those have been, to me, the two biggest obstacles. Mm -hmm. And you were talking earlier about your collaboration with the Bill Gates Foundation that has been going on for several years now. Could you talk about the dynamics um, of the collaboration and how does it differ with collaborations with companies? Yeah, so, well, it's, we've actually now been working with the foundation for 10 years. And it's great. They've kept increasing the amount of money they give not only to us but all and our MIT, but also to the different companies like Lindra and, and others, uh, Dare, uh, which has uh, acquired microchips, uh, and, 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 and others. Uh, we're just starting one called Syntis that, that they're going to give some money to. So, um, you know, so they've, they've been great that way. Um, they've been very supportive. We... I think are quite lucky. We have a, a what's called a quarterly steering committee, and uh, which is Lowell Wood, and who's an absolutely brilliant person. Um, you know, Dan Hartman, who used to at one point be at Novartis, Susan Hershenton, uh, who was the VP at Amgen, and Steve Karp, who's worked at a number of uh, companies. And uh, so, so I, I uh, would, they, they're. You know, have a lot of industrial experience, and they keep giving us a lot of good advice. And uh, so, I, I they, they, they've been very, very supportive. And Bill himself, actually, it's interesting. Every year, I give um, the what they have set up is I give Bill a three to four hour lecture on what we've done. It's probably the hardest I work to, uh, <laughs> but but you know he's actually very helpful. He keeps thinking, well, how can we make these things happen faster, and 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 so forth. And and the projects range not only from drugs and vaccines, but also in nutrition. We've been doing a lot with the foundation in nutrition. So, I mean, they, and, and, and the people at the foundation, they keep saying, well, maybe we could use this technology with this group at, at the foundation, you know, whether it's, um, you know, childhood diseases or, um, you know, tropical diseases. And so I, I found it to be, be very, uh, you know, I remember when Anna Jacqueline, who I mentioned before, you know, she was doing different things in our lab. And she said when that project, when we started working with the Gates Foundation, she said that really changed her life because it was so compelling to try to do drug delivery in a way that could change so many people's lives. And so that, that's, that, they, they've been very, very helpful. And now switching gears and starting to talk a bit more targeted to drug delivery, uh, what do you see the main challenges in drug delivery to be? Well, there are a lot, and you just heard some before, uh, you know, in the, the last talk. I mean, I, I think it's pretty unlimited, which is maybe a good thing for people in the audience uh, doing the research and the companies. But, I mean... You know, I'm not sure where to start and where to end, but obviously getting through barriers, right? Can you ask me, you know, can we get through the GI barrier for, um, you know, for oral biologics? Uh, clearly getting through the blood-brain barrier, that's been a challenge, uh, you know, for many companies. By the way, it's not just getting through them, it's getting a lot through them in a safe way. Um, I think that in addition 
to, uh, to getting, and, and then the skin barrier, actually every part of the body, the ear barrier, the eye, uh, the, the va vaginal uh, tract, you know, so every single part of the body um, is, 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 is a challenge getting through those barriers. A second thing is targeting. Could, you know, which was mentioned, can you target things to specific tissues? Like El Nylum did a great job and others too on targeting to the liver, but that's relatively e easier. Targeting to, can you target, and you know, Dan Anderson and I in our lab and our students, we've been working, as I mentioned, on, you know, different particles, but could you target to the heart? Could you target, you know, to immune, the right immune cells? Could you target to cancer cells? So I think that's an, another big area. A, a third one is making systems smart. You know, could you, um, uh, you know, could you make intelligent delivery systems that can respond to signals in the body? And then there's all kinds of other specific things, right? Can you um, stabilize, you know, stability of complex molecules like proteins or nucleic acids or even the nanoparticles themselves. Can you, um, can you design things more intelligently like different nanoparticles by using artificial intelligence or things, things like that? But, there, but there's uh, so many that I, I, I've left out many, many different ones. But these are a few of the challenges, and it's, it's you know, new materials that could solve problems, make things more bioadhesive. If you, in some cases, I mean, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't know where to stop on this. There's, uh, I, I, I'm sure if we do this even 30 years from now, there'll be a tremendous number of challenges that uh, haven't been solved or could be solved significantly better. Right. And like thinking about oral delivery, like 100 years ago, like delivering biologics early was uh, not really possible. It was considered Im rather impossible. Is there any challenge that you've attempted in your lab that you think it's impossible and still like you haven't found a solution and um, resolved it yet? Well, so I was very lucky. When I was a postdoc, I worked with a man named Judah Folkman. He had this idea that if you could stop blood vessels, that might be a way to stop cancer. That's actually what got me even into drug delivery, uh, designing really the first micro and nanoparticles that could deliver proteins or nucleic acids. But he, he believed anything was possible. In fact, everybody told him that stopping blood vessels wasn't possible, that designing those delivery systems wasn't possible. But he had this attitude that anything was possible. And of course, if people had followed his career, the, the, he, we did solve the angiogenesis problem, and it, it, it's interesting though, you know, we published the first paper showing that you could stop blood vessel growth in science in 1976. It took another 28 years before um, the first one of those would get approved by the FDA. That drug was Avastin, which is probably the number two or three best-selling biotech drug in history. And then many, many others would get approved after that. I mean, now there's probably over 30. The annual sales of these molecules are probably well over $100 billion a year. You know, dr drugs like Ilea, Lucentis, that can stop blindness and so forth. But he had this kind of attitude, so I was lucky to see it. So I, I, I think almost anything is possible, but it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of money. And, and um, I mean, of, of the kinds of things that we're talking about. And I remember one time when I was, um, I, I got this award once a number of years ago, it was a Lemelson Award for being like a, the 
I guess, the top inventor. And they had Christopher Reeve, who once played Superman, um, you know, give a speech. And he, at that time, was paralyzed, as people may know. He's since passed away. And, you know, his, they asked him, if it, could paralysis ever get cured? And he said he absolutely feel, that's also an area we're working in, but on the tissue engineering part. But he, he said, well, to him, he said he absolutely thinks it will get cured someday. He said there's just three issues, coming up with good ideas, time, and money. And I think that's right. I think that's true for so many things. So um, I, I, I hope that all these things, you know, someday we'll find solutions to, to you know, help people live longer, healthier, happier lives, particularly our children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've seen uh, in Mark's presentation how gene therapies and cell therapies are blooming. Like there are many companies um, dedicated to that, and some are um, being um, approved even in the FDA or in clinical trials. Um, do you want to share any specific um, technologies that you are working on that in your lab as well? And what's um, the vision um, that you have for that space? I mean, uh, we have um, a section dedicated to cell and gene therapy that certainly will learn a lot um, today later on in the conference, but um, there are many progresses out there as well. Yeah, well, I think there's been, I, I, I mean, I think what even the last talk, he did a very good job of going over some of the different technologies. But, you know, there's, uh, I break it down into different kinds of things. There's viral vectors, and of course, I think the challenge on that, as we see, is making them safer and safer. Uh, that's probably the biggest challenge, though some other challenges are what I mentioned, can you get them across barriers, like there's companies trying to get them across the blood-brain barrier and things like that. And then the other side of that, um, which is what our lab works on a lot with, and with Dan Anderson, who I mentioned, who was one of my postdocs now, full professor at MIT, and we have quite a few students working on this, are various kinds of non-viral vectors, both polymers and uh, and, 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 and lipids and making large libraries of them and trying to understand what the right structures are, the right chemistries, how to solve targeting problems, how to improve stability, um, and, and, and things like that. So uh, using you know, different kind of combinatorial methods and in some cases looking into artificial intelligence kinds of ways of learning from the chemistries that we do that do and don't work. And, and so that, that, that's one big area. Then cell therapy that you mentioned, that's, I mean, tissue engineering is one aspect of that, uh, and, and that's a, a, a real big effort in our lab, uh, both in terms of cell encapsulation, trying to come up with better and better, uh, you know, synthetic polymers. Uh, we started a company, Sigalon, that's, that's done some of that, and they can put, like Omid Wies, when he was in our lab, he's now at Rice, you know, put like genes in those cells like that could make erythropoietin or other molecules and actually deliver them from these capsules for many months. Um, and, and, and then the other side of it is like CAR T cells. How can you better make them? And some of the approaches that we've worked on, uh, Armin Shari, when, it, when he was in our lab, developed this technology, which was serendipitous, that if he just squeezed a cell, that, that it would enable uh, various genes to go into the cell. 
And they're actually, he started a company, Squeeze, which is now in clinical trials, actually working with Roche on, uh, on, on new cancer treatments uh, using that. But then there's lots of other ways too, like electroporation, which uh, Mark Prousness, when he was in our lab, did a lot of pioneering work. Ultrasound, which Samir Mitragatri, when he was in our lab, did a lot of pioneering work. Mark's now at uh, Georgia Tech and Samir at Harvard. So I think there's a tremendous amount of great work that's been done by various people and continues to be done. You know, and I saw that session uh, that you're talking about. I think that looks great. I mean, that's certainly a giant part of our future. Mm -hmm. And one last question for the last couple of minutes that we have left. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, drug delivery companies in light of how the market is today? Well, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think, I mean, again, a lot of it comes back down to funding issues and things like that. I think one thing that, that I've watched, this is the only advantage of being old, having worked in this since 1974, is that you see lots of ups and downs in the market. And this is not the worst down by any means. I remember in uh, 1990, you know, in the early 1990s when Hillary Clinton you know, I was trying to get price controls. I mean, the market, particularly for biotech, did terrible. And I remember just at that time, Alchemies, which was, uh, we did this merger. Enzatech was a, one of the first companies we, I started. We merged with Alchemies, and the stock went down, I think, to less than one. But Rich Pops, who was a very good CEO, he hung in there and was able to raise money. You, 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 sometimes you have to do tough things, but ultimately they got you know, many, many products approved, uh, drug delivery products to treat schizophrenia, opioid addiction, many other things. And, you know, they're still around today. And, uh, I mean, uh, stock's way, way more than where it was. And uh, they had a number of splits. Um, the second time, of course, and now people will probably remember this, is in 2008. I mean, you had this whole you know, giant crash, and everybody thought, you know, that would never end. But you can look at what's happened since 2008 to, to about a year ago, and the market comes back. And I think the important thing to realize is the market will always come back. You don't know when or how fast, so you have to be prepared. You have to, I think, try to figure out innovative ways to raise funds. Sometimes you have to do hard things. Uh, but I think that... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it will come back. And, and in fact, I think if you were Warren Buffett and you read what he says, well, he said, this is exactly the right time to invest when things are not good, not when they're doing great. So, you know, I'm overall very optimistic, but it's, it, there can be tough times and you just have to really have the right kind of management attitude to weather those storms. I think partnerships like this conference, I mean, that, it's one of the key ways. There are companies with no money but great ideas and companies with a lot of money and, you know, looking for things. And so I think partnerships is one of the big ways to, to, to try to address that. Great. Thanks for the great advice and insights. I think I speak for everyone that um, we are looking forward to see what are the next breakthroughs that will come out uh, from your lab. Um, we'll stay tuned and thank you so much for sharing them with us today. My pleasure. Th thank you, Esther. It's great to see you do it so well. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com.
This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.